So as I hope we've made clear, we've been hammering it away from since day one, a view of practice as a way of life rather than a bag of techniques and special forms and special places, which of course it is as well. But more and more uh, can it become a way of living, uh, not just paying lip service to it, but actually live it, live what we're reading about, what we're talking about. Uh, the methods, you don't need new methods. Uh, if you recall, a, the attitude is central. And so what was suggested, I think the first, very early on anyway, is that prior to any of these forms as life itself, there was no Buddhism. There was no Vipassana, Zen, Dzogchen. This is all made up. That came later. And it'll, it fades away and new stuff comes up. It's, a, it's the history of the human race. Magnificent history in certain ways. But prior to that is this ongoing life. Uh, if you understand that, then there can be a way of looking at things. I think that I personally have found very, very helpful. And I was fortunate that I was my first teacher. That was the way we practiced. So there was nothing radical about it for me. Is that it's, life seems to be a set of situations. We come uh, from one situation to, a neck, to the next. Um, each situation, you can ask the question, what's correct action here? If you're driving a car, as many of you will soon, correct action is to drive. Okay, what does that mean? To just drive, do what it takes to really drive. If, when we come to a retreat center, what's correct action? Well, you've been doing it, obviously. Silence is an important part, etc. We've been doing it for a week together. Uh, and it keeps going like that. Sometimes it's not clear what correct action is. So then you pause. Sometimes it's just nothing that's defined. You're just by yourself and fine. Enjoy that. So in this sense, we don't need an integration talk. Typically, the way Vipassana retreats are run is now it's time for an integration talk. And I, we're trying to integrate this with where we're going. There's nothing to integrate. <laughs> with this model, because there it is again, life, wherever we go. There we are again, there's life again, insisting on being a certain way, the weather is this way, you don't like it, good, you can not like it, it's still gonna be that way. And it's, so it's a, a state of mind, and I know people understand it, and I, I've been harping on this for years, but finally what happens at a deep level, we don't truly feel that it's as valuable as this. Because this is our icon. And sitting and in places like this and at home is precious. It's a, I love it. I love to sit. You might think, yeah, he likes daily life because he can't sit still or he hates sitting now after years of doing it. It's not true. It's not true. Uh, it's just that you don't sit forever. When you get up, it includes whatever your life is. And, I, and it's not that everyone has to live a certain way. Everyone has to get married. Everyone ha Not at all, because I remember when we first came back, 
I, was, I guess we, myself and others, we considered the first generation who went to Asia, brought it back, and so forth. Uh, and then some, uh, some of my colleagues who were monks, then the monastic model, everyone had to become a monk or a nun. That's the only way to do it. But then as soon as they disrobed, because they met someone, <laughs> suddenly everyone had to meet someone. <laughs> well, what happened to the monastic model? It's very valuable. It's invaluable living in the jungle air and all that and getting dysentery and uh, <laughs> malaria, you know, not understanding the language, uh, eating. Okay. Uh, but I met X, and uh, this is the next step. Oh, okay. So, no, I don't have to be a monk? No. You, but you better be in a relationship. Oh, okay, okay. Then. The person gets into a relationship. I have a few people in mind, but I'm not going to name them. Uh, they get into a relationship, and then they say, marriage is the answer. You've got to get married. It's not really a, a lay life unless you fully get married. Oh, so now I've got to not only get a, find someone, but I've got to make, marry them, too. Okay. Then you've got to have a child. You've got to have two. Ch it, there's no end to it. That, you know. Okay. So this is not saying that. What it is saying is explore. Each person, in a sense, is creating their own life. And if it's done with compassion and wisdom, uh, it can be, you, can, you can create a life that's appropriate for you. Some people are meant to marry. Some people are meant to be monks and nuns. They flourish doing it. But I've lived in these monasteries. There are people there. It's sort of the French Foreign Legion. They're there because they're misfits. They don't, uh, and some people shouldn't get married. Uh, we'd all be better off. <laughs> I probably wouldn't be here, but all right. Uh, so do you see what I'm getting? It's not, it's not, I don't have a model of how you're supposed to be, but rather it's a lifetime of learning, a lifetime of learning. But uh, that's another problem. A problem is we, con we conceive of learning as books and school. This is a different kind of learning. We're probably, well, not all of us. Some of us are still in school. Uh, there's another kind of learning, and it's it's you learn by living. Now, that's almost another cliche. Oh, I learned from the school of hard knocks. Yes, everyone gets knocked around by life, and some of us learn a bit. But this is asking for a much deeper kind of learning, of unlearning incredibly destructive habits that we don't even call destructive. And then we wonder why we are complaining all the time about the world we've helped create. All of us have, in our way. So um, each one of us, in this, in this kind of learning, uh, your best friend is clear seeing. How can you learn if you don't see something clearly? No matter what it is you want to learn, you have to attend to it. And so, has, so we're developing vipassana as clear seeing, accurate seeing. If you see things as they actually are, isn't that sensible? Isn't that intelligent? Doesn't it, isn't it common sense? If you see things as they aren't, is that supposed to be? I don't know. It doesn't sound so sensible to me. And can you learn from what you see and hear, both internally and externally? There has to be an interest in learning. Now, what I have found in teaching some of it's in Cambridge, wherever I go, people uh, come to the center. There's some Cambridge people here. I'm, 
Well, I, I've said this in Cambridge, so it's not a secret. Uh, and people are emotionally exhausted from jobs, from the complexity of the way life is, and earning a living, being unemployed, all different contingencies that are going on. It's always been that way, but it seems more so now. Uh, and you come to a meditation center, plop down, and someone like me is telling you to investigate, explore, uh, self-discovery, learn, be uh, flexible, creative. Uh, and I say, look, I'm, I'm exhausted. I just want to sit down, tell me what to do, I'll do it, and then I'll be okay, right? <laughs> in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. Yeah, I do feel much better. Thank you very much. No, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm saying, yeah, but what, you know, and that isn't the heart of Vipassana, the heart of Vipassana, it's a wisdom path. It's understanding. We learn our way to freedom in this path. I can't speak for other paths. It's through seeing clearly and then grasping the implications of how we live and what we're, the role that we play in our living and the consequences that come from that and learning from it. And some people learn and some don't, but you have to be interested in learning. And I know some of us have had enough schooling. This is a different kind of school, but there's only one textbook, so that's easier. And it's, you can say it's either free or it's the most expensive textbook in the world. No, it's not uh, the suttas. It's not Majjhima Nikaya. You're the book. It's the book of you. The book of Larry, whatever your name is. Whatever your parents called you. Or now, some guru told you your name is something else. Huh? <laughs> okay. So that's what we—that's what we're learning from by paying attention, and it is in the context of other people. I'm not saying much on sit, having a daily sitting practice. All of you are not beginners. Obviously, it's helpful to have a daily sitting practice. Why would you come here? Because you know that sitting, this is a very precious form. It's special. That's the term that's used a lot, right? Everyone's grandchild is special. I have, my wife and I have one now. Very special. She's very intelligent, beautiful, you know, and long, now with these new cameras, you know, long lists of, pho of photographs. Oh, here's Elan, you're about to smile, huh? <laughs> Here she is almost smiling. Oh, yeah. Here is, look at that. Aren't her teeth beautiful? Yeah, right, beautiful. Her head's a little big, you know, but no, okay. You know? Uh, and, and then films, the poor kid is watching. As if we're not vain enough, wherever she looked, pictures of herself all over the place. Films about here she is on a picnic. Here she is, you know, in the playground. You know, like, we just grew up, we played with a few sticks, you know. And, I don't think I saw a picture of myself until much later. You know. Okay, um, what did I get off on that? Because <laughs> we're going home, I guess that's it. Yeah, I'm not going to say much about sitting uh, because you already know it's precious and special, but it isn't special. But it is, but it isn't. In other words, when you hear it's special, when you leave here, can what is, now, I'm not saying that taking out the garbage is as fascinating as coming to IMS. Of course it isn't. Well, let's say you love photography. You're, you're in a state of joy when you're in your dark room, let's say. I'm not saying you have to make sure that vacuuming is as good as that. That would be a new form of torture, and it's another form of greed. 
But what you can do is bring attention to it because it's not about garbage. It's, it's about the quality of your life. So much of what we do in life is ordinary. And I'm not using ordinary here as putting it down at all. To me, ordinary is quite beautiful. I wouldn't say my life was like that always. I've learned that from the practice. I don't need so much special uh, variation, novelty. It's all here. Okay, so please sit. Now, some of you temperamentally have a contemplative nature. You're going to want to sit more than others who are more active. Fine, then that's the way that will be. Uh, some of you uh, are in school and are raising children. You don't have enough time to sit. Maybe five minutes here or there. Fine. It's not about putting in mileage of how much, let's see, uh, 40 hours this week. That's pretty good. I must be wiser. Uh, uh, what's coming out of that practice? I mean, are you wising up? Are you learning? Are you letting go of suffering? Are you, has your, has life become smoother? Are you able to hear other people and so forth? So everyone has to work that out for themselves. You know, there's not one size fits all. Um, what I'd like to uh, get at some of it is in daily life, let's take the framework that we have of uh, the three, those three awareness trainings. They're really not so different. They're all about training awareness. So the first one, we restrict reality a bit by making it the whole body and the breathing. Um, <clears throat> there are other ways to uh, calm the mind. Perfectly good at the nostrils, at the tummy. In some ways, they're better than this if you want to get deeply absorbed. Uh, there, and as many of you know, maybe most of you, there are actually practices, which uh, the, the, the jhanas, where you become absorbed. You, you sink into deeply into an object, and then temporarily everything else goes into abeyance. You're not aware of anything else. So you don't have any problems because it's like getting lost in a movie, a good movie or a good novel. Temporarily, but you're not dealt with uh, what's going on in your life. You've just temporarily gone deep, and it's like a holiday. And is that valuable? Yes, it can be valuable. And like any other method, it can be a dead end because it brings a lot of concentration, joy, uh, sometimes psychic powers. You'd like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Come on, admit it. <laughs> If you, let's say if you van something or other, you'd be on TV and uh, speaking to, you know, life after death, and uh, it was really hot for a while. Everyone was mediums, and there was a program called The Medium. It was fun to watch, and everyone was concerned about life after death. What this is about is their life before death. <laughs> That's what I'm interested in, is their life before death. Okay, so... Why did I bring, where is it? <laughs> it's the early stages of senility, bear with me. Um, so we're training awareness. Uh, it, the advantage of whole body is, now, when I, now and then a student turns up who really is drawn to the jhanas. And I think it's great. I've done jhana training. It's valuable. Uh, you can get caught there, but you don't have to get caught there. You can use it to strengthen the mind, and then from that, then you open it up and you do face yourself. Wisdom has everything to do with facing yourself. 
To get to know the Buddha Dharma is to get to know yourself, as one great Japanese master put it. To get to know yourself is to forget yourself. That's an, uh, an odd one for people who are new, maybe if, even if you're not new. Like when we talk about who am I, self-discovery, self-awareness, self-knowledge. So what you find out here is you find out who you aren't. It's not that you find out who you are. Because everything that comes up, these are notions in your head telling you who you are, what society has told you who you are. And then we believe it, and then we got a problem, and then we have to work our way out of it. Uh, Self-knowing is you see it, and you see it for what it is. It's a notion. We, we've been over this, and you've heard, it, you've heard that. Okay, so all of that is when you're, uh, so if somebody has that uh, inclination to get very concentrated, uh, a narrower uh, focus, like on the nostrils, could, could be more useful. The whole body, whole breath awareness, in my experience, because I've done a fair amount of these different approaches, lends itself to daily life. What we're trying to, what the three of us are trying to do, is to have a practice that's as natural and simple and as close to daily life as we can manage. So that, for example, what's the advantage of natural walking? Isn't it better to do very slow walking? Very slow walking has certain advantages. You can get much more precise, concentrated, but try walking that way uh, in the mall. <laughs> you know, I think you won't, someone will come over to you. <laughs> And he, and he or she will have a blue uniform. <laughs> okay, so the natural walking isn't as precise. It isn't as precise, but uh, it, as you it, as it becomes more natural and you en inhabit the body, it starts to become part of the way you live. Even at home, when I uh, you walk from one room to another, it's just walking becomes enlivened. The body becomes enlivened, and so that's an asset. So let's say when you're sitting and the whole body breathing, it's not that far away from when we open it up. It's just another, a wee bit of, a, of an extension. And then there's everything else. There's thoughts and moods and so forth. In the second, the, uh, the, using breath as anchor. And some people do very, very well with that. And others don't. They just prefer to just sit without the breath as a help. Fine. Uh, all of them are about awareness. We're not trying to set an Olympic record for the most continuous conscious breaths in the history of the human race. It's not about that. It's finally, it's not finally even about the breath. It's about awareness, learning, and letting go. Letting go of what needs to be let go of. It's not working. OK, um, so these three are very pliable and flexible. And I hope in the groups and all you've seen that you can find your way within it. And some of you may find this whole schema is not for you. This paradigm is not your, your way at all. And especially if you're relatively new, then find another path. This isn't the only, onlyest way. It's one way. It's worked for a lot of people. I didn't make it up, really. It's a, I, you know, I put certain things together that have been going on for thousands of years. But if this isn't, the, if this isn't for you, that doesn't mean meditation is not for you. Don't, don't get discouraged. Go to the mall. There's now so many different flavors, and try them. Uh, but if you find this is for you, don't go to the mall. If you found a way 
don't go shopping all the time. You have many different kinds of meditation. Well, on Tuesday, the Tibetans are in town, and then Wednesday, I like Soto Zen, but the, the, the Rinzai people, it's more active, it's more energetic. I think I like that, and they have better robes. And you know, <laughs> uh, The Vipassana people are nice, they're very down to earth, but it's just sweatpants. I mean, you know. <laughs> Let's, uh, so now we're, we're home. Uh, let's say soon you'll be driving, many of us will be driving or you'll be getting on a bus or on an airplane. And it's very common. What I'm about to say, you've heard us say it in different ways many times at the end of retreats. Some those who've been, uh, who've gotten left back and come to more retreats. <laughs> um, let's say you've had, a, in quotes, a good retreat. I had a good retreat. I went deep, you know, good retreat, very deep. Okay, whatever that means. But anyway, uh, you get in your car, you've had a nice samadhi, some calm, you feel happy. It's really nice, so it's been a wonderful way to spend time. And as if you're heading to Boston, uh, as the mileage ticks off, your hard-earned samadhi ticks off too, but in the reverse direction. The more mileage, the less samadhi. As you get closer to urban life, you know, big trucks, cars, motorcycles, big pot, you know, you have to wait in line, uh, rude drivers cut ahead of you, the police car and a siren, and a, there's an ambulance, you know, the signs would take a left uh, 40 miles. You know, suddenly it's as if you never were here. And you start suffering. Great. That's an opportunity for wisdom to flower. Because you see, you got attached to what happened here. And, and of course, it, it's not going to persist because the conditions aren't there. New conditions. But awareness and learning and letting go, uh, that's, that's always possible. In other words, life is finally the supreme master, the great teacher. But you've got to sign up for the course and then do the homework. So it's constantly teaching wherever we go. There's no, the lesson never stops. And if you start paying attention and are willing to learn from life, it's all there. We have the tools. The main tool is interest, attention. And these methods and techniques can be useful. You don't need a whole lot of techniques. And they finally, I think, finally, the most important one is the ability to see clearly and to learn from what you see. But see, I mean all the, everything. Okay. Um, so let's take some of that, and then I think maybe just one suggestion, because a lot was said on relationship. Doug gave a, a talk on relationship, Matthew did, uh, the bamboo pole, and, you know, and so forth. Um, we're going home, we're going back to wherever we are from here, and a central part of practice in daily life is relationship, isn't it? And if we don't learn how to use relationship as a Dharma practice, uh, this will be rather limited. If we think we can just sit once or twice a year, come to IMS or wherever, and then go back and then mess things up and then come back and fix them up again and mess things up. Um, but if you see it as a way of life, then it's inescapable that relationship, which is the hardest one for us humans, it's obvious it is. That's why people go off to the forest, caves, become monks, nuns, uh, we don't know how to live together. We humans, we're very bad at it. We're great at so many other things. Just terrific. 
we can't seem to learn how to do it. So uh, this is an attempt, first of all, to acknowledge that the very thing that's hardest for us, that's why in a certain way, if it weren't so difficult, we might not even be interested in these things. Many people, we come to meditation because we're casualties from social life, either in family life or work or school or a relationship, something when we first started. And then there's the wisdom of the East. We have a romantic view of somehow, have you lived in the East? It's populated by human beings. <laughs> Do you think there's only wisdom in India? I love India, love it dearly. But there's many troublesome people there, maybe more than here. It's every place is, is crazy and wonderful. And we're all just human. And uh, so can we enter into that? And relationship is such a central part of it. Can we turn things around? There's a Dharma, I don't know what to call it, saying a bad situation is a good situation. Or that by which we humans fail, we can succeed. And so if relationship is the hardest thing for us, then instead of running away from it, or even coping with it, you know, just don't lie, don't cheat, just bare minimum behavior so it's a little bit civilized, just a little bit, because clearly it's not enough or we wouldn't be at war all the time and killing each other off and violating each other and all the rest of it. Uh, if if uh, that's so, then what if we started to view relationship as a, a prominent, a profound Dharma practice, in addition to being people you know, in your life. That is, when we're in the presence of another, they push up a button. Sometimes no button, okay, that's what happened. You, know, you give a person some money, they give you a newspaper, and not much happened. You didn't even look at them, and they didn't look at you, fine. But very often, children, partners, everyone, we're affecting each other. Now, what if you learn the art of as you attend to the other, not losing touch with your inner life, not losing touch at all. And I think the talks were getting at that. I know they were. Um, and it's hard to learn, because I've been at it for a, a long time. But it can be learned. It's not that you master it once and for all. Uh, I haven't. I have no aspiration. I know I won't be able to, because life has got this open-ended quality. It's full of unexpected uh, uncertainty. Things come out of nowhere, and they just happen, and people behave in ways that we're not prepared for. Uh, but if we take it on as a practice, that means it's as valuable as sitting. It's not less valuable. And here's why it is. If you use the Buddha's teaching as a guide to living, which I do, uh, then the Buddha makes it very, very clear in many, many cases that finally the whole practice is about not attaching to anything whatsoever as being me or mine, selfing, we could call it, where we have an illusion that there's this solid me that, that's doing everything and to, to whom everything is happening. Well, you can have that to start with, we all do. Person, it's self-view, it's sometimes called sakya ditti, personality view. And so we're always building that up, supporting it, tearing it down, protecting it, and everyone's doing it with each other. But if you sit and just watch, you can see that that isn't true. Because you can see different notions come through the mind. Well, which one is you? And they have quite varied, contradictory, change over time. 
uh, and at a certain point, that's what I meant earlier, you find out who you aren't. You're none of them. Not really. If you want to be, the, if you identify with it, then you are. It's ahamkara, is eye-making. That's the term the Buddha used. In other words, self-making. You can use memory. You can use an identification with a country, a religion, a, a meditation practice. I'm a Vipassana yogi. Oh, yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a, a person of Zen. We're much, we have funnier stories than you. <laughs> Your stories are boring. <laughs> and very righteous, pious, and you know, everyone gets enlightened, and it's just not true. Okay. Uh, but if you want to get free, we're getting free from that, from this obsession with our story, endlessly revising it, producing it, directing it, you know, with the whole thing. It's a one-man-and-one-woman show. Okay. Um, relationship flushes out selfing like nothing I've ever seen. I'll just tell you personally, I sat lots of long retreats when I, three months, more than three months, sometimes alone in silence in Asia here, and I sometimes left the retreat feeling I'm just, oh, a hair away from sainthood. Just a little bit more, one more sitting, and I'll be, you know. <laughs> and all I have to do is come back to Harvard Square, and within 10 minutes, I'm a, I'm a jerk again. <laughs> Somebody, uh, cuts in front of you in line, or you're going through line to pay for something, and at the last minute the person says, oh, can I pay by a check? You know, and then they start fumbling through their wallet, and you're going, uh, and you say, wait a minute, I thought you were going to be a saint. You know, you can't even be patient enough to let someone pay by, you know, lose, what, 30 seconds? You know, you're annoyed with this person, let alone people who are intimate in your life where they can drive you crazy. Okay. So all of this, you can feel it in here. As you become aware of it, you can liberate yourself from this ahamkar, this self-making, me-making, I-making. And it's not by killing it or trying to get rid of it. It's not violent at all. It's just, look, when, when there's selfing, in a moment when we're, we fill ourselves up with ourselves, pump air into ourselves. Here it is. If, aware, if there's mindfulness in that moment, accompanies it, it's benign. It's not, it's not harmful. So we're not at war with this tendency of mind to keep producing notions about who it is. We just see it. In the seeing is the healing and the liberation. That's why we're so, in Vipassana, the emphasis is on clear seeing, accurate seeing. The seeing does it. It's not that you have to do something. Unless you, well, the seeing is doing something. We, we're not, we weren't brought up to watch our fear, watch it. That, I, I wasn't. Okay, let me give you a few examples. Uh, Matthew talked about the uh, acrobats. Uh, if you take care of yourself, then you take care of the other. If you take care of the other, you take care of yourself. In the Buddhist teaching, that's what is called a dependent arising. That is, we tend to think of us as atoms, isolated. The truth is we're creating each other when we're in, it's human interaction. Um, I can see maybe I didn't, that's not so clear. Uh, see, because I have x-ray vision. <laughs> Normal people can't see what I see. <laughs> okay. Years of practice. I know what's going on here. You can't. You can't. Let's take the. Let's take it to a, on a lar larger level. Arab-Israeli conflict, which I follow closely. Um, 
if you hear a certain Israeli point of view, it's the Arabs are the problem, and they, 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 always, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. There are a whole bunch of, is blaming. There would be two states, there'd be peace, but, and so forth. If you hear, if you hear <coughs> Palestinian speaking, it's the Israelis' fault. Okay, a dependent arising means they've created each other. The Arabs are the way they are because the Palestinians are, the, I mean, the Palestinians are the way they are because the Israelis are the way they are. The Israelis are the way they are because the Palestinians are the way they are. So if people could understand that and sit down together and understand, like, uh, this is how you make me suffer. Oh, and this is how you make me suffer. Oh, let, in other words, let's help each other out of this. But very often, only one person wants to do it. So we can do it for ourselves. Mostly what we're doing is not what uh, Matthew was talking about in that sutra. By, because if you take that teaching, which I think is accurate, uh, a lot of what we're doing is, I'm not going to take care of myself, and therefore I'm not going to take care of you. Or you, you don't benefit. Uh, uh, I'm not the other way around. I'm not going to take care of you, so therefore I'm not going to benefit. So what that teaching is doing is reversing, because we're behaving... Uh, we're not taking good care of ourselves, so that's what we bring to, to other people who are in our life. This is reversing that. It's start taking care of yourself. It's not selfish. Beginning yogis often say, well, isn't Vipassana selfish? Just sitting there, you know, navel-gazing and all that. This is, you can't give life any more than you are. It's your signature. And as you refine yourself, as you change, that's what you're bringing to other people. You can't give someone something you don't have. You can fake it, but it doesn't, it doesn't work. And it's the other way around as well. Let me give you a very humble example from my own. Yeah, and then, then we can have some, uh, if there's some stuff to talk over. Um, I had a, uh, I still have her, but I mean, she, she I was to talk, she left the body. Uh, she passed away. I lost her, my mother. She died, in other words. We have all these words. Somehow we can never say, my mother died. We have to say, she passed away. Uh, I lost her. Well, maybe the lifeguard can find you know, we, 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 <laughs> There's a lost and found. No. She died. Just like the blind gentleman said, I'm blind. It's okay. Why can't we say it? Okay, so my mother died but she did take good care of me. Now, sometimes people take good care of others at the expense of themselves. It's a way of neglecting themselves. That's not, but that, you saw the implications of that in both talks. Okay. So my mother, a very, very loving mother, she's now 90. We hear from, uh, get to the hospital in Northampton. Uh, she only has a couple of days left, so our immediate family, we all converged on a hospital in Northampton. Um, and we were with her. Day, we were with her. We, uh, my wife and I checked into a, a little motel nearby, and we were with her as much as we could to be with. And there was one one occasion that I'd like to mention. So, in other words, it is someone I do love and I do care about, and I still wasn't able to do such a great job. We were with my mother. Um, every she had a fall, and just one arm could move. Everything else was. Uh, was couldn't operate her nervous system. I guess she fell in the bathroom. I guess a stroke. I'm not sure what to call it. But her right arm, it had some strength. She's 90 years old, frail. She's lying in bed. My sister, you know, the immediate family were all around her. 
and I'm holding her hand and talking to her, and she can hardly breathe, and she's gasping for air. And I start uh, giving her a Dharma talk. You, you don't need to know the rest. You know that it didn't work. Okay. <laughs> and I say, Mom, uh, your body has served you well for 90 years. You know, it's, <laughs> suddenly this feeble 90-year-old woman, I thought she was going to crush my hand. Uh, no woman wants to hear that she's 90 years old. <laughs> so she's, she's going to say, it served you well. It's okay. Don't, she was struggling so hard to breathe. You know, I was saying, relax, it's okay. Uh, and the more I would give her this, I thought it very good, first class Dharma talk. <laughs> I think I read it in Ajahn Chah, he said that, you know, to some dying per villager in Thailand. Why it, wouldn't it work with my Jewish mother who never even heard of the Dharma? You know, okay. Uh, and, got, and finally, uh, she was really annoyed. I could see it. Uh, and I realized I wasn't, I was, the reassuring of her was in order to reassure myself and our family. We were all suffering tremendously because of her gasping for breath. And I, in a way, I was trying to tell her to relax, honor her condition so I wouldn't have to suffer so much uh, being, feeling awful at how hard it was for her to breathe. And as soon as I saw that, uh, that fell away. And then I was able to say something. The first was correct, but it wasn't right. Uh, correct from a Dharma point of view. Then I switch from channel wisdom to channel metta. And I just said, Mom, uh, you're a, you've always been a loving person. We all love you. So many people in life have loved you. You've done so much good for people. And she just lit up, and she was so happy. And her hands, you know, I didn't have, my hand wasn't crushed anymore. Uh, and then she smiled, and I realized uh, the, the first teaching was incorrect because it was, I cared about her, I love her. But it was also had a lot of me in it. And how do I relieve myself from the anxiety of her gasping for breath? And as soon as I saw that that was, that it was real, that wasn't, I wasn't fully attentive. That fell away, and then I could see her for what she was. And then out of the corner of her mouth, she could hardly speak. She said, don't ever mention my age again. <laughs> <laughs> and she's never had a look like that. She's always been a very sweet, maternal, loving. Some of you have met her. You know she is. She was famous for no matter what. You could throw a pie in her face. Oh, booble, you know, like. <laughs> uh, the joke about her was, um, especially about me, Larry can do no wrong. There are two of them. What, the joke in the family was, because I went through a lot of careers, so-called. This is my fourth one, if you want to call this a career. Anyway, um, and the, the joke was, Larry could come home. My sister had a little bit of envy. She said, you know, Larry can come home and say, Mom, I've decided to open up a bordello. I really, and I'm going to say, as long as it makes you happy, dear. You know? <laughs> And there was another occasion where at, she only heard me teach once at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. It was a talk, and it was a lot of people. And the talk, I blabbed on for the way I am now. And then at the end of it, someone gets up and turns to both my parents sitting in the back row. And, and, and Mr. and Mrs. Rosenberg, uh, has meditation improved Larry? 
and she jumps to her feet, and she's usually a very shy, you know, she jumps to her feet, improved, improved, he doesn't need any improvement, he's imperfect. <laughs> <laughs> the place went up, the place did what you just did. And I became red, and I, I was like two inches tall. So this is the woman, you know, of course I loved her, and yet I couldn't help her fully because I wasn't aware of my reactivity. So relationship helps you see yourself, and in the process of seeing that, uh, you unlearn in that moment. It's not that you have to have a new program or a workshop. You learn, unlearn it in the moment, and then it's replaced by much more accurate seeing, and it's obvious that isn't the way to go. Uh, to finish the story, uh, she was supposed to, she only had a few hours to go. Right. She lived for three more years. Tough old bird. <laughs> anyway, uh, two more years. Um, okay. What, anything we can talk over together? Anything that's, any, anything on your mind? It needn't be a question. It can be if anything, uh, any of the instructions are not clear or whatever. Please. Gonna, you may have to speak a little louder. Sorry. When I come to IMS, it seems the emphasis is on concentration. But on Wednesday night, in your talk, by the time you got to the third stage, it sounded way more like Vipassana is receptive. Yeah, but you can't fully be receptive until the mind is stable. So, you see, uh, I understand, in other words, shamatha vipassana, but the first one is more... In other words, the mind does get more calm and concentrated. Uh, you see, con here's, a, here's a view of concentration. A very focused, a lot of effort, in, out, in, out. That's one approach to it. The, the approach we're taking, if I understand your question, is <clears throat> you still have to maintain a steadiness of attentiveness, but there's no force in it. It's a, it is a different style. You're quite right. And in this style, relaxation and alertness are primary. Uh, and there are other styles, like some of the Burmese teachers who came here. Uh, I, I had, um, when I practiced with Ajahn Mahabua in Thailand, uh, you've got to cut the head off the calaces, take no prisoners. You know, I felt I was in the military again. You know, it was just... Uh, and then you go to Thich Nhat Hanh, embrace your calaces, love them. They're, you know... Um, there are different styles, and the language varies, but <clears throat> in both cases, <clears throat> we're enabling the mind to be steady and clear so that it can see insightfully. Now, this, this separation between shamatha and vipassana, it's somewhat artificial. They really are, uh, we make that up, it's sort of expedient for teaching, and it can be useful. But many teachers later on, and very powerful ones, and as it moved throughout Asia, uh, taught shamatha and vipassana simultaneously. That's some of that is what we're doing. Look, in, in even in Thailand, which is more like what you're talking about with Mahabua, some people were just not drawn to being very concentrated. They said, "Fine, start with vipassana." Uh, you have to be. In other words, they were very interested in the way their mind behaved or the way they. Uh, their bo uh, the bodily condition, but they couldn't stay with one object, either a mantra or breath or whatever. So he would say, fine, start with Vipassana. 
Well, how can you start with it? The, the reason they had a natural samadhi because they were more interested in it. And as the mind became more concentrated, not by officially doing concentration, those are just words, then they said, okay, now go back to the samadhi practice. And, say, and then it was easier for them. And some people uh, get stuck in samadhi and it, they get very powerful samadhi. There was one a yogi in, in Cambridge. She was practicing maybe six months and she was already into the jhanas naturally. It just came to her. And then I said, okay, now it's time to open up and get to know yourself. Oh, no. It took years to... Pr- she just would, did not want to look at her stuff. And the day came when finally it just started to break in on her. It's not as if it wasn't a bit there, but she was using it in a sense as a very high-class form of repression. But what's in back of your question? Okay, it may be a word problem, but what I'm more interested in is that it's working for you. Then keep doing that. Sure. Yeah. Please. Uh, on that same subject, I, I've been practicing this week shamatha vipassana, and I go into I go into vipassana pretty quickly, and that's been working because it seems to anchor me. Better. You're more interested in it? I'm more interested and I'm more willing to, to not go off into my thoughts. Okay. I'm more satisfied in this refuge. So, what's the problem? There's no problem. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. <laughs> yes, please. I have a question for Doug. Sure. Doug, you've been talking a lot this week about thoughts and how you have to be very, how they can be dangerous. Is there any place where you can really trust trust thinking? <laughs> oh. uh, sure. I mean, I think uh, thinking is an important, necessary tool. Again, if it's uh, guided by wisdom. I mean, when thinking is propelled by irritation, fear, anger, um, you know, when it's propelled by one of those pinching off points then it's not trustworthy. Uh, When it's uh, uh, in the service of clarity, wisdom and compassion, it can be a a wonderful tool. And in that way, we don't have to to plan it. I mean, if it's in the service of clarity, then clarity is using that thinking. Rather than thinking in the service of uh, me being angry, which is a completely different uh, internal experience. And if I'm paying attention to who I'm in relationship with, if in fact I'm able to see through all that cloud of stuff, I'm getting a pretty clear signal back from them that it's also not working for them. So again, I think this, it, it's a relational practice. And one of the values of, of some clarity of mind is that I get to receive your feedback about how I'm now in relationship with you. And then we co-create something very different, I think. Does that make sense? Could I, uh, let me link that to this framework. What, each situation, what is correct action? 
So as the mind gets clearer, it's more able to know what, uh, what is correct. Sometimes correct action is thinking. If you're filling out your income tax, I hope that one plus one equals two. Do you see what I But also, let's say what I'm doing now, I'm using thinking. Now, I know that thinking is a convention. We made it up. I know it can't. It's about what we're all doing here. I know it isn't what we're doing here. It's about what we're doing here. And I'm doing my best to use language uh, to get as close as I can, knowing full well how limited it is. Even like words like shamatha vipassana, the way we create a problem with the, with the language. I'm doing vipassana now. Uh, well, what is it? So, well, I'm paying attention. I'm, you know, uh, so understanding what is called for, as Doug mentioned, is extremely important. But in talking, I'm using language, and I'm really doing my very best to use language, knowing full well its limitations, but it's also necessary. That's, there's something uh, in a lot of uh, spiritual traditions, there's something called a twilight language. It's usually poetry. In other words, it's language that, better than what I'm doing here, uh, dips into what is beyond language with its feet in, li- in, uh, in, in language. And it was in emptiness and in like poetry. Can, and sometimes art can do a better job or music. or ch- so that, But finally, only the experience is what it is. If you're a mathematician, that's thinking. So many of the most extraordinary things in the world have come from thinking. So let's not mistake. Th- how could business go on if there wasn't clear thinking? But we have to, if we understand that there's more to, more to a human being than thinking. We've put all our marbles into this realm that created largely by thinking. And we've created a, a little world, an enclosure, which is me. And we're protecting it. We get hurt by it. We defend it. Uh, we believe in it. In the meantime, there's a vastness in back of us. We want to call it spiritual. We want to call it sacred, whatever you want. That is unexplored. Even the brain we now know, much of it is not, it's not used. It's uh, atrophying. So uh, I would say the issue is when is thought necessary and useful? And then if you have a clear mind that thinks straight, you're fortunate. So we have to look, it's created civilization. What created this center? Thinking. So, and then if you, there are times when you don't need it. And we don't know those times because it's not part of our education. So we're learning it. There's a whole realm that is beyond thinking that is very precious. It's not to exclude thinking. It's to know how to, how to use them both. Okay, please. Um, you said when you get in the car, you know you just drive. But isn't there different ways to drive? I, I know in my own life, just relatively recent, I used to be you know, constantly trying to get a good radio station on, and oh, I'm up in Western Massachusetts, I can't get a reception. And all of a sudden, I just realized, you know, who even needs the radio on? I could sit and drive and, and be in the sounds and the sensations, and then it's part of my practice. Not to say that listening to something could not be part of practice, but is there a difference between different modes of driving, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. But look, there's also there's, there's rough standards that you can use. One person can be an excellent driver driving. Ex- for example, uh, our, our son-in-law 
He drives extremely fast, and I feel totally safe with him. Uh, he's done a lot of driving. He was even a speed car racer when he was very, very young. I feel totally safe. He's extremely competent. Very, he kind of disappears into the wheel. It's one of his favorite play, things to do in life. Uh, and there are people who drive very slowly. I can't wait to get out of the car. Okay. Now, I, so the test would be a pragmatic one. You know, like if you can listen to music and drive, that's fine. But now, as you know, we're being discouraged from there are people who are coffee and, and music and texting and driving with one hand. And uh, so I don't want to legislate, as if I could, uh, how you should drive, but you have to figure out what the best way for you to drive, which is effective to get where you're going, but also safe. So if that's what you, you've come concluded, then that's a good way for you to drive, sure. Please. You're going to have to speak a little bit louder, not much. Um, I have a feedback loop going of practicing you know, choiceless awareness and feeling the appropriate action in the moment. And then uh, judging mind is very strong for me. So it will come in and say, well, don't you think you're special? Don't you think you know what the right thing to do is? Oh, I'm so great because I know the right thing to do. Um, and I see that that's just a thought pattern. Um, but it does spark a little doubt of knowing. It sparks? A little doubt of knowing whether it truly is you know, wise action that spontaneously arises out of the situation, or if there is some selfing informing it. Um, Look, it's, it all has to do with, uh, with awareness. There's no special formula. Uh, for example, uh, wisdom is skill in action. So uh, to use the Buddha's uh, guideline, if something is beneficial for you and others, then it's skillful, it's wise. If something, is un something could be skillful for you but not for others, that's not wise. Uh, and unskillful is the reverse. Uh, fine, but how do you tell? Well, as your wisdom grows, and that grows out of the clarity of mind, and your interest in finding out, uh, seeing the, uh, when I do this, I get that. Learning from your life as you live it, seeing the con everything has consequences. Because what the law of karma is saying, or just in common sense, our actions verbal and physical, and even the kinds of mind states that we cultivate all day long, they have consequences. And uh, if some of us start in this, we're being encouraged to taking your mom. Okay, take, the way you take care of your two children, your mind is your child now, uh, because we're trying to educate it, guide it, so that it's it's wiser. Now, all you can do is the best you can do at the time, as the way you are now, uh, rather than uh, I don't have any secret formula. But as the mind gets clearer, its discerning ability is naturally enhanced. Now, when the mind becomes very clear, then you have fewer choices, which is good news, although Americans typically don't hear it that way. We want lots of variety, many flavors. Okay, because you see what is so obvious, 
and it may not have been obvious when the mind was a bit more muddled. So that's why it's all, read the Dhammapada, the very first one, the quality of mind, everything flows from that. Now, when you take on this meditation practice, we're improving what is skillful, is more and more having content in the mind that is beneficial. It's, it's sometimes called wholesome. Not crazy about that term, but uh, it's beneficial. Uh, rather than thoughts that are destructive, okay, more and more with awareness, that starts to get weaker and uh, the mind starts having more positive, loving, compassionate, wise thoughts. And then best of all is no thought. When the mind, in my own case, and I'm hardly alone in this, the most important healing in my life has taken place in the silence. So don't underestimate that. When the mind becomes quiet, stay there, bathe in it. Let it, let it work on you. There's nothing you have to do but receive it. Um, <clears throat> so it, it, practice is a constant refinement of your understanding, your ability to understand. It's like when you're a child, you do the best you can, and usually it's silly. But as you grow, if you're learning, uh, you're more discerning. Discernment is part of, do you see what I'm getting at? Please. Yes, uh, I, I become joyful. Uh, all I can say is uh, this entire endeavor, I'm not going to call it practice yet, right now, is both very serious and very, and very joyous at the same time. Now, if you mean joyful that you don't, you don't have suffering, that's unrealistic. Um, now, that means it's serious in that I'm going to ma make a, a serious statement. Self-discovery is urgent. It's not, a novel, it's not a luxury item. The degree to which we're ignorant of ourselves, uh, the price we pay is exorbitant. There, you can be illiterate, but know yourself. Then in the Buddhist term, you're, that's good. You can know the entire corpus of the Buddhist teaching in Tibetan, Zen, Theravadan, but you don't know yourself. It's a waste of time. In other words, you'd probably still be messing people up without even wanting to. You'll have all these great thoughts. So uh, have you not experienced any joy in practice? You're talking, you're talking to me. Of course. Well, <laughs> <laughs> what is this, a Robert De Niro movie? <laughs> <laughs> Who else am I talking to? <laughs> you talking to me? <laughs> I'm starting to be careful about what I say with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I am talking to you. What, what, yeah. Do you? I don't know, especially on retreat. Yes. Yeah, so I've been on, I've been on several retreats, but mostly all I'm experiencing is um, the cracking of the egg, the shell. Um, but as I've said to some of my peers, there's mostly terror and fear as the shell breaks. But then secondarily, when I come on these retreats, and I know I'm not supposed to look at people, Larry, but I do. <laughs> so sometimes when I'm taken in the surroundings, I'm like, you know, these are some serious people with a serious mug. I'm, you know, this is it. Like you said, I'm about to be a saint. And so those, uh, I've lost my train of thought. It's spoken. Um, uh, yeah, back to your question. You were talking to me. And what I was saying to you is, this practice is profound. I haven't felt joy. 
ever? Uh, maybe for 30 seconds. Yeah, have you done some breath awareness with some continuity? Uh, this week. Yeah, have you felt any peace? Five seconds. Okay. But what, why are you still coming here? I just told you this work is profound. Yeah, but I what? Get, I, get, I get glimpses, glimpses okay. of certain truth. Uh, the, the Buddha Dharma, you were just, um, you just made a funny comment about the person that read all the books. The, the Buddha Dharma, yeah, that's me. Okay, uh, that, that's reading, studying, I study. Uh, that has its place, but if it replaces self-understanding, you, you may find that it's rather limited. But let's get back to your, to your question. I can't give you a sense of joy, but here's what, I, what I'm... When I say practice is both very serious and also joyous, uh, at the beginning, when, and the beginning for many, it varies from person to person, uh, <clears throat> unless you've started to really experience how precious it is, how invaluable this is, how essential it is to, to the self-exploration self journey, this journey into voyage into ourselves. Unless you experience it, uh, I can't talk, I can give you a pep talk, but it's not going to be yours. It's just going to be, uh, it's my joy. Also, there's a, a happiness that's a, a mind state, like happy, unhappy, happy, unhappy. Those things are all going, we already know what that is. People are nice to me, I'm happy. People are not nice to me, I'm unhappy. I make a lot of money, I'm happy. I lose stocks, I'm unhappy. So that's up and down. There's something much deeper than that that the practice takes you to. That, uh, and I wouldn't even call it happiness. Uh, that's why, but you know, once we get stuck in language, we have a problem. But I'm gonna, I have to use it to get to your... Um, finally, what the, I think what the Buddha is talking about is deep peace, inner peace. It's not uh, the happiness of uh, ecstasy. That happens. It comes and it goes. When it comes, enjoy it. But there's something else, and I don't know if there is an I don't have an adequate language for it, but it's not like every time I meditate I'm looking at how wonderful I am, or in other words, sometimes what I see is a limitation. But I'll tell you, there, were, there was a turning of a corner where at a certain point I realized, uh, even in looking at my suffering, it was so obvious that this was, the, this was the best thing I could do for myself. It's not because the book said so or some teacher said so. I knew that this is the best thing I can do. Because what, else, what are the other things? Avoid it, deny it, drown in it. Uh, no, become aware of it. And there's a certain kind of, in other words, another inadequate word, fulfillment, that comes from using your life in a way that seems useful, good. Um, Here's, I'll give you a parallel, because I, I, I don't think my answer is going to be satisfying. Oh, oh. Surprise to me. Oh, I feel good now. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we ought to end the discussion. Okay. We say, people come and, uh, you know, take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. Uh, and often, at this, you know, we have beginners who come to Cambridge Inside Meditate. They're just starting. I feel it's it's idiotic. In other words, I make it clear that how can you have uh, take refuge in the Buddha Dharma and Sangha? Uh, you, they're just words to you. They don't mean anything. 
So I don't make it feel it's a should, unless you take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, you can't do this retreat. Uh, what are we talking about? It seems uh, unreal. So that at a certain point through practice, the day comes where you know what it means. From You dig it out of your own experience. It's yours. Whether you use the, that language or not, then to take refuge in the Buddha, because there are formal times when you take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, I don't know if you, are you aware of that? Okay. Um, I tell people don't take the refuges and the precepts until you really feel it's sincere. Don't take it just to fit into the crowd. Oh, did you take your refuges and precepts? I did. Yeah, good. I'm taking mine to who's giving them? I think uh, Narayan's giving them. I think Michael, Larry's giving them. I like to take it with Michael. I like to take it, you know, like. And in Zen, it's even more so. When I was in Zen, it was like, uh, um, I feel it's, it's misleading. Uh, or even with the, refu the precepts, I would say, if you don't feel you can take all five, take one that you're sincere about. Because in the others, they grow out of intelligence. To, to not lie, do you have to be, does it have to be like, come down from God like a lightning bolt, thou shalt not lie? You learn that lying doesn't work. It produces exactly the opposite effect. It destroys things. And it, 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 it interferes with the quality. So that I'm afraid... Uh, the real answers have, connect, but you are coming. You see, you're doing it, and so I do have. It's amazing. Okay, so what is it that's amazing? See, because maybe it's language that we're getting. No, 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 no. It's just funny. I keep coming. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll take what I can get. All right. <laughs> okay. Last one, please. Anything? Yes, please. I understand. Yeah. Have you got about five months? <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, there's. A, okay. Uh, uh, I'll just. Here's a very. I, I do. I think I understand what you're saying, and I do. I'm very much in the world, and pay attention. I. I, I still enjoy going to coffee shops and reading my New York Times, and you know, and I watch the next this new generation of students, and uh, so I, let me let me give you a, one example. Yes, there are a lot historically. Let's say when the Industrial Revolution came in, that was over a hundred years ago. It disrupted all kinds of things, and people became obsessed with this, that, and neglected everything else. That's going on now. I think the technology. Uh, is obviously brilliant. Are there dangers in it? The technology in and of itself, it's miraculous. These little gadgets, I don't own one, but I, I'm impressed by them. You touch this and it's a phone, then it's a camera, then you know, I, you know, like, uh, uh, what, whatever you need, it's some of this little thing, it has it. And there are people and children now, our, our granddaughter's five years old, she's way past us, you know. She's born into it. Uh, I don't want to fault that. The problem is how we use it. But we, this is the world we live in. Let's take, I watch the news a fair amount, CNN and other news stations. So let's say you're watching a screen. And I think this is what you're getting at, but tell me if it is. 
or isn't. And you're, you're watching something going on, uh, something in Turkey, there's rioting in Turkey or whatever it is, and you're attending to it, and the announcer's telling you what's going on, so there are two modes of information. Then, as if that weren't enough, in the corner there's some gen Turkish general to a translator, he's telling you some other things, and then there's scrawl, you know, the scroll about Joe Blow from Idaho just shot 15 children, you know, in the playground. And then, so while you're watching that, if this gets a little, if the Turkish general starts to become boring, you go to Joe Blow from Idaho, and then, uh, then suddenly there's a scene of, of students throwing things and police coming. Oh, forget Joe Blow from Idaho, forget the Turkish general going over here. And then you go back to the scroll, and there's an interesting scroll. Uh, President Obama said that, and then a commercial interrupts it. Uh, it's maddening. You know, it's as if we have to be entertained every second of the day. And at least in Cambridge, everyone's got something in here, in here, in here. You know, like, uh, okay, so because I'm going to get to us as yogis with the challenge. Let's say when I was an undergraduate and a graduate student, we went to coffee shops. And we sat and we you know, drank stuff and ate and argued politics and talked about our courses and put down our professors, of course, and put some up. Uh, and we laughed and we were very over, super serious and we got into arguments and so forth. Well, people are now doing the same thing, except they're doing it with a computer. So here's, here's a late, I just saw it about a week ago. It's a couple, they come in together, each has their own computer, all right? He's, he's sitting on one side of the table. She's sitting on the other side of the table. They each have something to drink and something to eat. And they're doing different things. They're there together. He's looking at the computer, and he's very serious. It looks like he's either trying to become the next multimillionaire, or he's doing a term paper. Whatever it is, he's really working hard doing that. Then suddenly, I guess he changed from that. I had enough of that. And then it's, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and in the meantime, she's doing serious, and he's laughing, but they're not doing it with each other. They're doing it to, to you know, or, oh, I just, I found a mountain climber in, uh, in, a, in, uh, in Siberia, and we have a wonderful connection with this mountain climber. We email each other back and forth. I said, have you ever met the, this person? No, but we feel so close. If he showed up in your door and knocked, hi, I'm Yvonne, I'm the mountain climber. <laughs> <laughs> You know, sort of like, police, 911. <laughs> There's some strange man with a fur hat here. Okay, uh, so this is the world we live in. Now, if, we, if it's going to work out as a culture, you know, it's right now we're so in love, fascinated with technology. And we, what you're getting at is, a, to me, an extremely important point. But it's been going on for a long time, thousands of years. Wisdom, but right now, the stakes have become very, very high. I'm sorry to end the retreat this way, but, it is, but it's true. Because w the brilliance of the thinking mind, the brilliance of it, has created uh, power through science and technology. Uh, we've unleashed power that's extraordinary and that can that destructive power and also polluting power, you know, all that you hear. And there's not much, do you hear uh, parents saying, oh, we just want Janie and Johnny to grow up 
and go to IMS and develop wisdom and be in compassion, or you know, go and spend time with the dollar. It, they want them to go to MIT and get a degree in engineering and computer science and make a fortune. So uh, wisdom is puny. It's this tiny little wisdom, and it's got vast, powerful machinery that can destroy the world ten times over. Or we're going to reduce atomic bombs. So, so with we're I don't, the real question is: Are we capable of learning? And right now, you know, the uh, it's hard to know. But now, you as an individual, because I face it too, uh, when I walk down the street, I feel it's important for me not to be, have, my, have stuff in my ears, but to just be at home with ordinary sounds and ordinary people. I've taken that on. Of course, I'm not that interested in this anyway, so it's easy for me. But let's say, I would suggest, take a look. At, are you overly dependent on these things so that you don't hear birds chirping anymore? Uh, you don't uh, pass people and see their moods? Uh, you're, you're not in touch with the trees and the weather uh, because every second of the day you've got to plug something in and hear something. You have to be entertained nonstop. As soon as you get home, music's got to go on or you've got to turn on this. Um, so we're doing, this is the world we live in, so we have to learn how to live in this world. But we don't have to do exactly everything that everyone's doing. Uh, but the only way to use it sensibly is to see where you're not using it sensibly and make a correction for that. As for the rest of it, um, I don't know. Because there are people who are pushing for sanity. Uh, and when people, the, the problem isn't nuclear energy, nuclear bombs. It isn't pollution. It's the mind. It's always been the mind. Let's say in ancient India, people were suffering then too. Otherwise, when the Buddha talks, he's talking about suffering. They didn't have all this stuff, but they used bow and arrows and you know, knives or whatever. But they couldn't. The power wasn't so enormous that it could destroy them. I mean, the whole thing, the whole planet. They didn't have that. Uh, but even then, wisdom is, wisdom is not something that apparently we're in love with. It's maybe people think it's too hard. So we reserve it for special people. Monks, nuns, priests, rabbis, you do it. You wise up and tell us how to live. In the meantime, we'll just destroy the world. That you guys, but now it's we can't afford that anymore. So, where, for example, let's say greed. People are talking about corporate greed. It's greed. It's in other words, it, the Buddha's teaching is almost three thousand years old. Greed, hatred, and delusion, and their children. Different. Well, that's the soil out of which all this destruction is coming from. The, the root is ignorance. In other words, we really don't understand ourselves or how we're living or what we're doing. Because we don't, then we do things that really don't, uh, that, are, that are not beneficial. We're not intentionally necessarily trying to hurt ourselves. We just don't, we're confused. We're, we're ignorant in this sense. We ignore, we don't know ourselves. So wisdom is an attempt to correct that. So greed, hatred, and delusion are alive and well. They always have been in every culture. I've not been anywhere. The content changes, the outfits change, but it's always in the same, different form, the same thing. So unless the mind is taken seriously, and there is some, it's promising. This is growing. I don't know. I don't have a, you know, uh, mindfulness. We can spread mindfulness. The whole planet will be saved, like peanut butter. Just spread it everywhere. Uh, I, I don't see how that people have to want to really use it effectively and have to look at certain things that it's not so easy. Is it always easy? You, you know, it isn't.
But we're motivated. We want to do it. Now look, if a lot of people don't want to do it and only a small number want to do it, so be it. This is how I want to live my life. Just selfishly, I'm just pointing that out. And I see this world. I live in the same world you just described. And I'm trying to live a sane, simple, natural life within it. I make, I use email, uh, etc. And there's certain things I don't want to waste my time with. I'd much rather do other things. Um, so I don't know. This, it, it's, it's in the process of unfolding. But right now, for example, they talk about attention deficit disorder. It's, the whole culture has attention deficit disorder. But there are certain people singled out. You know, you have attention deficit disorder. Yeah, uh, specifically, but then look around. And isn't that TV, CNN with all those things? Looking, you're looking there, got that. Um, so yes, it is inclining us in that direction. But do you have to go in that direction? Can you be in the society but not of it? That's been a standard for thousands of years. Not to uh, uh, be isolated or negative about all these stupid people who don't understand anything. Why don't they meditate? We're all finally interconnected. Everyone's human, everyone, etc. But if this is so helpful, then let it help you to live in this world with some sanity and learn how to relate to the people in your life who maybe don't see it this way in ways that are reasonable. I'm not saying it's easy, but I can just say that's what I try to do. It doesn't mean I succeed. But it's, you're, you put your finger on a big thing because no amount of conferences and peace treaties and United Nations and uh, uh, committees doing special, none of that's going to have much impact. It hasn't unless the mind changes, unless the heart changes. And that means a radical change in culture and uh, what we think is important about living. Whew. <laughs> Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> so I'm in the entertainment business now? Okay. Can we have a few moments of silence? ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. I, on behalf of the three of us, hope you all have a wonderful summer. Even those of you who are walking around and drinking at the same time, <laughs> and sprawled out on the grass, you too.